Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. Close your eyes and um, let's take a journey together back in time. All right. We're going to go back in time almost 2,000 years to a foreign land and a tiny suburb on the outskirts of Jerusalem. You're in town to celebrate Passover, but when news came that this Jesus, who everyone has been talking about, is actually on his way into Jerusalem, you decided you couldn't wait to see him for yourself. And so you've made the two-mile journey up to the Mount of Olives. As you draw near, you're swept up in the crowd of people who have all come out to see him. And you start to hear their chants, Hosanna, Hosanna. You force your way through them, hoping to get a glimpse of the one that they are proclaiming to be the son of David and the king of Israel. And then with one last push, you finally break through the crowd and come to a clearing and look up just in time to see the face of the man riding by you on a donkey. And for a moment, time stands still. Now, as you examine that mental picture that I've just asked you to take, open your eyes, and let me ask you a question. What's his expression? What's the look on Jesus' face? It's not rhetorical, anybody. What's his face look like? Calm, okay. Smiling? Smiling. Any of the rest of y'all imagine him smiling? Raise your hands. Something kind of like this, more or less? We have the slide. Uh, Maybe? Slide? Yeah, there we go. Something like that. Uh, Now listen, before we examine this picture, uh, Isaiah prophecies of the Messiah that He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So the casting choice here of Diogo Morgado is clearly highly questionable. All right, that, I'll give you that, that is a beautiful man right there. I'm I'm secure enough in my masculinity to be able to recognize that, appreciate that about him. So that, that is not Jesus according to the Bible. I'll give you that. But the 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 historically inaccurate casting notwithstanding. Is that how you imagined him? Let's go, go forward to the next. Is that how you imagined him, more or less? Kind of contently smiling. 
soaking up the well-deserved praises of the crowd, applauding them for their recognition, finally, of his true identity, their long-awaited Messiah. I mean, after all, don't our Bibles label this passage the triumphal entry? Well, this morning, I want to just push back on that label and challenge it um, as being equally historically inaccurate uh, and try and give you my reasons for doing so. And it's not just because Scripture tells us that the crowds, in fact, went out to meet Jesus as he was leaving the Mount of Olives and didn't wait for him to actually enter into Jerusalem. It wasn't an entry at all. It was an exit. But I want to question the triumphal part as well this morning, all right? And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that in doing so, we might learn something not only about ourselves and about the kind of king that our hearts seek, but that we might also learn something about Jesus and something about the kind of king that we truly need and find only in him. So let's pray. Father, you must now increase and I must decrease. I pray that you would help me to get out of the way this morning so that you alone would be at the center of our gathering. And that as we study your word this morning, you would open our eyes, you would illuminate our minds, and you would speak to our hearts that we might see your face more clearly. Amen. So, why Palm Sunday? Why Palm Sunday? This, This has always astounded me about our church calendars. I I grew up in a church actually very similar to West Hills in a lot of ways, um, where we might light some candles for Advent and maybe get together on Good Friday if it didn't conflict with spring break like this year. Um, But but otherwise, our Sundays at my church typically commemorated more secular holidays than they did sacred. We had New Year's, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, and don't forget Super Bowl Sunday, of course, right? Um, that's got to be in the Bible somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, but really, the only three Sundays that we could count on hearing the same story from Scripture consistently preached year to year was Jesus' birth on Christmas, Jesus' resurrection on Easter, and this so-called triumphal entry story on Palm Sunday. And it always just kind of baffled me, right? I mean, of all the stories we've got in the Gospels about Jesus, here's a guy who walks on water, who calms storms, who, who heals paralytics and, and mute and blind and, and lame, who, who raised a guy from the dead. But we're going to carve out a day in our church calendar to celebrate him riding into town. Something that I do literally every day, and my car's got 198 horsepower, by the way, so take that, Jesus' donkey. We'd, we'd, but we'd always, it was so weird to me. We'd order palm branches, and all us kids in the church would parade around waving them. And, you know, we'd make this big deal. We'd learn a special song to sing for the congregation. It was, it was this whole production. Why? Why? What's, what's so special about Palm Sunday? Well, some would point out that Palm Sunday is so important because it signals the start of Holy Week, Right? And no matter what sermon series we've been working our way through for the past couple weeks, uh, Palm Sunday is is an occasion for us to to transition and to to spend time intentionally now reflecting on Jesus' all-important work on the cross. And ultimately, uh, next week, next Sunday, his empty tomb, right? 
It's Passion Week, and that's certainly true. This week we do celebrate an important kickoff, and I'm not just talking about March Madness. Although I will know, it's nice, I'll have the added benefit this morning of knowing if I've gone too long uh, in my allotted time for the sermon, because Mark Cushera will be back there getting his Villanova face paint on um, and, and pointing to his watch, right? Um, but if, if Palm Sunday is really about getting us in the mood for Passion Week, that, to me, makes Jesus' smile in the pictures even more confusing. Because Jesus, of course, knew what he was riding into town to do, right? And that was not any surprise to Jesus. So just four days later, we see him back at the Mount of Olives, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible is really clear in that passage about the lack of smiles, right? No smiling going on there. Moreover, Luke's version of our own story for this morning, the triumphal entry, ends and is immediately followed by these words in chapter 19. Read along. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Your enemies will not leave one stone upon another in Jerusalem, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So we specifically hear here, Jesus weeping prophetically at his entry into the city. So why the smiling depictions? Why, why are celebrations? Well, I want to suggest, you know, there are other reasons to commemorate the story as well. It's, it's one of only two stories up to this point in the Gospels that are recorded in all four. It's a fun fact. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have uh, the triumphal entry. And as you may know, it also heralds the fulfillment of a really important Old Testament prophecy, namely Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now, what you may not know, and what I just discovered actually this week in researching for today, is that Jesus is also fulfilling another more obscure prophecy here, this time from Daniel 9, verses 23 through 27. And for the sake of time, we're not going to uh, read it, and I'm not going to give you the full analysis of that one this morning, but suffice it to say it involves a 6th century before Christ prophecy that accurately predicts the exact time span, 483 years to the day between the rebuilding of the second temple by Ezra and Nehemiah um, and Jesus' triumphal entry here in Mark chapter 11 and, and Jesus' prophecy to, to destroy the temple and rebuild it. I'll let you research that one for your own, uh, for homework this week. It's really astonishing. It's really neat. And so there can be no doubt from Mark's triumphal entry story itself that we are to expect and to recognize Jesus as being the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel. The passage is dripping with prophetic fulfillments and symbolic allusions. Just check them out. Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9 are just the tip of the iceberg. Here we go. As early as verse 1, the astute student of the Old Testament will discover that even the location in which the story is set, the Mount of Olives, carries with it eschatological significance as the place where According to Zechariah 14.4, where Yahweh will one day stand on the day of judgment. Then we've got Jesus' specification in verse 2, that they will find an animal 
uh, specifically on which no one has ever sat, which in Old Testament times were reserved for sacred pr- uh, purposes like sacrifices, or in the case of uh, 1 Samuel 6, 7, pulling the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of God's very presence in the midst of the people. Are you picking up on the symbolism here? Then there's the fact that Jesus takes the donkey in this way in the first place, which is reminiscent of Samuel's prophecy in 1 Samuel 8.16, for telling a king's right of property conscription. And then, of course, we've got Jesus' own justification for taking the donkey, that, quote, the Lord has need of it, which echoes David's words in 1 Samuel 21 when he eats the bread of the presence from the temple. It also turns out that Zechariah 9 isn't the only prophecy about a coming king riding on a donkey. Genesis 49, 10, and 11 similarly prophecies, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Interesting. Seeing Jesus on a donkey would have also brought to a first century Jewish onlooker's mind the coronation of of King Solomon, the literal son of David, to the throne, as recorded in 1 Kings 1, 33 and 34. Listen, and David said to them, have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him as king of Israel. We know from extra-biblical sources that in antiquity, spreading garments was an act of homage reserved only for welcoming high royalty, and Scripture itself recounts one such instance. In 2 Kings 9, 12 and 13, where Jehu is anointed king of Israel, then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under them on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king spread their garments. Similarly, the palm branches symbolize not only Jewish nationalism as they are required for the festival of tabernacles, see Leviticus 23.40, but also foreshadow the future royal tribute to Christ in the last days, see also Revelation 7.10. So we've got bookends there. Lastly, in case there was still any ambiguity about the matter, right, Verse 10 of Mark 11 is a direct quote. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A direct quote from Psalm 118. The same psalm that prophecies about, quote, the stone that the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. And the same psalm that was sung annually by all Jews at the celebration of Passover at their Seder after drinking the third cup of wine, the cup of redemption, in celebration of the procession of the coming royal Messiah. All right, it's it's dripping with prophetic uh, citations and allusions here. So in conclusion, we have time and time again in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9 and 11, Jeremiah 23 and 33, prophecies about a coming messianic kingdom in the line of David. And here in Mark 11, we have the very same words of David himself from Psalm 118, placed on the lips of a people crying out to their son of David, to their king of Israel for salvation. Hosanna, Hosanna. Literally in Hebrew, save us, save us. That's what's going on in the story. If there was any doubt about it in Jesus' story up to this point, that he was in fact the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the son of David, and Son of God, finally come to save Israel from bondage. Our scripture passage for this morning finally clears it up once and for all. 
That's why it's an important passage. But my question for us this morning is, what kind of king? What kind of king and what kind of salvation? And from what kind of bondage? You see, the crowd expects and exclaims something really very interesting here in verse 10 that sheds some light on the kind of king I think they expect Jesus to be. The kind of king they want Jesus to be. The kind of king they think they need Jesus to be. They shout, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And if you read any of the commentaries, what you realize very quickly is that the Jewish crowd here is actually making a historically and a politically loaded claim about who they expect Jesus to be and what they expect him to do. Namely, to reestablish the kingdom of our father David. Now, if we're going to understand what they mean in proclaiming him to be that, we're going to need a little history lesson. And just in case history isn't your thing, let me sell it to you this way. We're about to cover the entire narrative of the Old Testament condensed down into about five minutes. And it's not every day that you get to hear a preacher attempt to sum up thousands of pages of writing and thousands or millions, however you interpret it, of years of history in five minutes. So stay with me and indulge me. Now, before I do that, and in order to do justice to that story, that overarching Old Testament narrative, we must first understand this crucial concept of the kingdom. All right? What do they mean in Mark 11.10 when they say kingdom? Today we tend to think about kingdom primarily as a geographical term, as in a sovereign state in Europe lying off the northwest coast of the European mainland, including the islands of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and many smaller islands, which is the United Kingdom. Very good. You get an A for geography today. See, we're getting history, geography, all our social sciences in. It's great. However, when the Bible uses the term kingdom, it primarily means reign, rule, authority, or sovereignty. So, for instance, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, something he does over 80 times in the Gospels, his favorite topic of conversation, more than any other single topic, you cannot understand Jesus at all if you don't understand this idea of kingdom. Jesus is not referring to a physical place so much as he is to a spiritual reign and rule of God, an existence that is characterized by God being authoritatively and sovereignly in charge. Right, so that's really important. Now, when we understand that, the story of the Old Testament in five minutes goes something like this. Once upon a time, before there was time, there was God. God was good, and God was king. Not over a physical place, because matter didn't exist yet either, but in the more important biblical sense we just discussed. In the desire to share his goodness and increase his kingdom for the sake of his own glory, God created all that was. The crowning creation in God's kingdom was humanity, made in his own image and given dominion over our own kingdom, within God's purview, and thus given the unique capacity for both relationship with God and the unique capacity to reject this reign of our benevolent king over us. In an act of prideful rebellion, we chose the latter, deciding we would make for better kings than God, and we invited him to leave our earthly kingdom 
choosing instead a new prince for our world, who also happened to be looking to expand his kingdom of darkness. But God, in his undeserved, steadfast love, refused to give up on us and decided that even should the rest of humanity refuse to accept his rightful and perfect rule, if he could find one man, just one man, to see truth and to choose life, he would in his sovereign goodness bring forth from that man a great nation to bless and ultimately save all other nations on earth. Still, even this man, and especially his descendants after him, continued to reject the way of the one true king. And so, we found ourselves enslaved to a new king, an earthly king who rivaled the prince of darkness in his ruthless reign over us. But God heard the cries of his people and mercifully delivered us from bondage. He made us a new offer, a covenant of kingship, that he would be our God and our king forever if we would only have him and obey his commands given for our own good. And so he gave us his law to make the perfect ways of his kingdom crystal clear for us. But before he was even done revealing it to us, we were already crafting for ourselves a king of our own making, one we could worship on our own terms. Yet God's covenant faithfulness remained undeterred. And so he provided sacrifice for us as a means by which we could atone for sin and remain in his kingdom in his presence. And he led us into the land he had promised us to make us a holy kingdom, his kingdom. But instead, once again, we hoard after the gods of the surrounding nations, rejecting God as king altogether. And deciding instead we would once again prefer an earthly king to rule over us. In his patient love, God acquiesced, even offering to be a guide for our kings. And they listened to him for a while, David more so than any other, and even he proved to be a lying, thieving, polygamist, adulterous murderer. And that's all just from one story about him, if it gives you any hint into the character of these other kings who eventually decided that they could handle things without God. Thank you very much. And so our kingdom steadily deteriorated in proportion to the decaying relationship between the one true eternal king and our mortal pseudo-kings. Far from being a blessing to the other nations, we had become completely indistinguishable from them. So God ordained that the kingdom should pass from us and that we should be humbled in order to learn to trust in him to be our king alone once again. But God sent prophets through whom he spoke to us, declaring that one day he would once again make us into a holy nation and that he would send a new king in the line of David, but God's own son this time, to rule over us and to reestablish his kingdom here on earth and that his kingdom would have no end. That's it. Time. How did I do? Five minutes? That's the Old Testament. That brings us to Mark 11, our passage for today. And the crowds cheering, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You see, I think the only way for us to make sense of the fact 
that the same people chanting Hosanna here on Sunday would be chanting crucify him four days later, five days later on Friday, is to recognize that Jesus wasn't at all who they thought he was. They tell us as much in Mark 11. We want someone to reestablish the kingdom of our father, David. And what was his kingdom like? Well, now that I'm about halfway through, a little over halfway through my time allotted for this morning, we haven't touched uh, your bulletins yet, and Mark's starting to sweat back there, which is only going to make the face paint run, Mark, so, so don't sweat. Let's get our pens out, and let's start filling in some blanks in the bulletin. I think the kingdom of David and what the people loved so much about it was essentially characterized by three things. All right? David's kingdom is characterized by three things. Number one, first of all, we want a king who routs our enemies. We want a king who routs our enemies. I'm, I'm going with Gary's alliteration thing here, so the routing, the, the wording is kind of weird. Um, and, and that's not a typo. When I say we want a king who routs our enemies, that's not a typo. I didn't mix up my pronouns there. Because in the same way that I think I consistently said we rejected God as our king and that he remained faithful to us when I retold that story of the Old Testament. I think we missed the point entirely this morning if we point fingers at Adam and Eve and blame them, oh, if you only hadn't eaten the apple, oh, and we, blame, and we point fingers at the faithless Israelites wandering in the wilderness and judge them for their faithlessness. We point fingers at the stupid disciples who still don't get it after Jesus has told them the same thing a hundred times. We missed the point, right? Because that's us. That's why God gives us scripture. Their story is our story. We are the ones who reject God. We are the ones who are faithless to him. We are the ones who misunderstand Jesus all the time. So make no mistake, here in Mark 11, we are the ones crying out for a Messiah of our own making, a king of our own choosing. The kingdom of our father, David, Now, if you know anything about David, you know that the man knew how to fight, all right? Even if today is your first time ever in church, ever hearing about Jesus, first of all, that's really exciting. Let's talk after the service. Find me, please. Um, I bet that you've heard of the story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, watch March Madness, right? It's always a David and Goliath story. We we, we refer to it all the time. Go MTSU. David and Goliath, right? 1 Samuel 17. You may not have heard the story from the next chapter in in chapter 18 where David collects 200 Philistine foreskins as Saul's bride price for his daughter Michal. Uh, 2 Samuel 17.10 tells us that all Israel knows that David is a mighty man, right? That's what he's known for. That's his M.O. So much so that they wrote a song for him about it after he completely drives out their enemies from the promised land. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Indeed, David kills 60,000 Philistines, Syrians, Moabites, Zobahites, Edomites, Ammonites, and Amalekites in 2 Samuel chapter 8 alone. He kills another 40,000 in chapter 10. So really, the song should be Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his hundreds of thousands, right? This guy is a natural-born killer. 
You've probably read some of his prayers about it, as recorded in the book of Psalms, right? Listen, Psalm 55. Let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive. Send the wicked down to the pit of destruction. Psalm 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. These are not psalms we use in our you know, opening liturgy in church usually, right? And of course, there's everyone's favorite, Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. I mean, David's last words on his deathbed in 1 Kings 2 are instructions to his son Solomon about how to get revenge on all the people who have wronged David during his life that he just plain ran out of time to kill. That's that how ruthless this guy is to his enemies. I mean, the dude is just all about some good old-fashioned Old Testament vengeance and justice. He lived by the sword, and he was like, really scary good at it. And every first century Jew knew this about David, and they loved it about him, particularly as they happened to be living at their time under the oppression and the rule of one of the most notoriously ruthless kingdoms in all of human history, Rome. Right? You may have heard of the Pax Romana, but there's a reason there was so much peace in the Roman Empire, namely because nobody dared to cross Rome. You know, they saw what happened when they crossed the emperor. You've, you've seen the movie Gladiator, Gladiator, Spartacus? You've probably seen it too. That's what happened. You found yourself in very precarious predicaments, right, when you crossed Rome. You found yourself in situations like getting lit on fire, impaled on spears, and then propped up in Nero's gardens to provide lighting for his dinner parties. Those kinds of precarious predicaments. So when the crowd sees that Jesus has the power to work miracles, and they hear him saying things like, I came to save Israel, and then he starts riding towards Jerusalem, David's old capital, and the city that God has promised to restore to the nation of Israel one day, they put two and two together and shout, Hosanna! Here he comes! Save us! The kingdom of David, finally, it's back! Right? And so you can, you can almost see the movie playing out in their eyes. This is like the original, original Rambo. Like Rambo before Rambo 1. Ancient Rambo, where he like rides into town with this cool smile and then kicks down the Roman governor's doors and, and delivers this cheesy one-liner and, and then pulls out these futuristic messianic weapons from his robe and just starts lighting fools up. Right? That, that's what they're expecting Jesus to do when he rolls into town. But let's be real careful about judging them, right, and, and their expectations of him. Because are we any different today? I mean, how do you feel about your enemies? How do I feel about my enemies? I, I know I'm kind of skipping ahead in the sermon here, but when Jesus said to pray for them, I don't think he meant, God, please let her be sick today. I can't put up with her at work one more day. I, I don't think he meant, God, did you just see that guy cut me off? Man, he's got to get what he deserves driving like that. I don't think that's what he meant. 
Who among us can honestly say that you've never, let's say in the past week maybe, um, wanted to call down God's divine wrath and judgment against someone or something that doesn't play well in your little kingdom? Well, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I am chief among sinners here, okay? For me, this past week, it was the makers of the new TV we've got down in the youth room. Why you would ever make a TV without a power button on it is beyond me, <laughs> all right? But, but I, find, I find that I am, feel slightly less unchristian if I can displace my anger onto inanimate objects or their nameless, faceless creators, Right, so I get mad at TVs. Um, but w- whatever it is for you, don't you see? We're really no different. We're no different than them. The second thing we want in a king is we want a king who richly blesses us with prosperity. We want a king who richly blesses us with prosperity. If David was known as a warrior king, he was also known as a filthy rich warrior king. Check out 1 Chronicles 22, where we hear how much David spent on preparations for the temple alone. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. Now, in case you're not up on your ancient Near Eastern uh, units of measurement, a talent is roughly equivalent to 75 pounds. So translation here, that's 7.5 million pounds of gold, 75 million pounds worth of silver, and so much uh, iron and bronze, they didn't even bother weighing it because they couldn't, all right? And that's just from the state-appropriated funds for the temple's construction. In chapter 29, we hear that David personally adds his own love offering worth somewhere in the ballpark of $900 million of today's money. And David wasn't the only one who was hashtag blessed, because next we hear about how his offering inspired his fellow Israelites to give as well. And there was plenty of prosperity to go around. Remember, where did he get the state-appropriated funds in the first place? Listen, then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, And the officers over the king's work, they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. They were wealthy people. (laughs) And so once again, first century Jews, they knew this about David and his kingdom. And they were fed up with the exploitative economic policies of Rome. And they longed for a kingdom, Israel's kingdom, aptly named the Golden Age, right? They longed for that literal Golden Age of the kingdom of David to return. They wanted a Messiah who would usher in a kingdom of prosperity and make it reign throughout Israel again. And who are we to judge them? Who are we to judge that? I mean, our, our very own uniquely American brand of Christianity, bred with capitalism, has given birth to perhaps the most pervasive and dangerous perversion of the Bible's good news around today, the prosperity gospel, by which God is reduced to a cosmic vending machine 
awarding out health, wealth, and happiness to those who pray hard enough, live righteously enough, or give generously enough to the right ministries. And it's not just them, it's not just the gaudy, heretical church down the street. I mean, listen to your own prayers. Pay attention this week. How often do we ask God for stuff? I mean, maybe it's not material things for you. That's not really my primary temptation either. Maybe it's not material things. Maybe it's just circumstantial, right? We think we know best what needs to happen in a given situation. We want to be king again. While Scripture does tell us to let our requests be made known to God, it's important to point out here in Philippians 4 that it never, God never promises to actually grant the request, only to give us what we really need, peace. In Psalm 37.4, we are promised that God will give us the desires of our heart, but only insofar as we are delighting our hearts and ourselves in Him and in His will. So I ask you again this morning, Do we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done? Or are we really seeking his help with our will for comfort and prosperity? Thirdly, I think we want a king who rules with a light hand. We want a king who rules with a light hand. For all his zeal against his enemies, David had to be one of the more lenient kings that we hear about in all of antiquity antiquity when it comes to ruling over his own people. He was so lenient that not only did two of his own sons on separate occasions rebel against him and declare themselves to be king, and not only did half the kingdom go along with them when they did so, but when David is finally vindicated in those situations, he doesn't line the insurgents up and systematically slaughter them like every other king we know about from antiquity would have done. What does he do? He pardons them, and then he mourns over the loss of his sons who rebelled against him. David said, what have I to do with you that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? David says, eh, I know I'm king. That's good enough for me. That's crazy. No other king in antiquity does that. Moreover, when David's grandson Rehoboam assumes the throne in uh, 1 Kings 12.4, the people ask him not to rule like his father Solomon had ruled, whose yoke was heavy upon them. And since David is the only other king that they've ever known to compare Solomon to in their lifetime, it stands to reason that David, by contrast, wasn't very heavy-handed in his dealing with the people. We want a king who rules lightly. David's light touch contrasted sharply with the whip that was cracked by Rome in the first century. Israel hadn't seen such oppression since the days of their enslavement in Egypt 1,500 years ago. They yearned for a savior, a deliverer, a king of their own, one like David whose yoke of rule was light. And of course, we want the same thing today too, don't we? It's why freedom is one of the most powerful concepts known to man. I know I did my Braveheart impression for you last time I preached, so I'm going to spare you this time. But freedom, right? Freedom. It's why come November, no matter who you end up voting for, or maybe at this point who you feel like you're going to be forced to vote for, you'll inevitably do so because you think of all the remaining candidates, this one 
provides for the lightest possible yoke. Now, whether you think that we're enslaved to the overreach of government and freedom means they need to stay the heck out of our business, or whether you think that we're enslaved to the special interest and the corporations, we won't truly be free as a country until we all have the same kinds of opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Either way, you're going to be voting in the name of freedom. Because there's something deep within us, deep within us, that hates the idea of being governed by anyone but ourselves and being subjected to anyone else's rule and will other than our own. You're also going to vote for the king you believe in November will richly bless the land with prosperity again. Because no matter how much we have, there's something deep within us that always cries out for more. You're also in November going to vote for the king who you believe will rout our biggest enemies too. Because whether you think that's illegal immigration and ISIS and the trade deficit on the one end of the aisle, or whether you think that it's poverty and income inequality and racism, we all want routing over our enemies, don't we? Because there's something deep within us that believes that if I can just externalize the problem that really lies within our own hearts, that maybe I can assuage my guilt enough to get to sleep at night. You see, I don't think Jesus smiles here at our shouts of Hosanna, save us, when we want salvation from the wrong stuff. I don't think he was smiling in Mark 11 when the crowds cried out for another David and wanted freedom and salvation from physical reign and rule and economic oppression. I don't think he smiles today when our hearts cry out for those same things. Hosanna, save us from Debian accounting. She's so horrible. Hosanna, save us from having to watch the Joneses hang their 70-inch flat screen when I'm stuck here watching on my old 50-inch. Hosanna, save us from Big Brother or Wall Street or the Muslims or racist policemen or whoever our enemy of the day happens to be. See, we want a king who routs our enemies, but what we need is a king who reconciles our sin. We need a king, a Christ, a Mashiach, a Messiah, through whom God might be able to reconcile the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. We need a king who recognizes that we are in fact the enemies, that in our sin we have picked up weapons against the living God and the reigning king, and who rather than returning fire, we need a king who dove in front of the bullets for our sake, paradoxically satisfying the death penalty incurred by our war crimes. We want a king who doles out justice and gives people what they deserve, but praise God, we get a king whose justice is satisfied by the blood of the Lamb and who gives us what we could never deserve, eternal life in his kingdom. We need a king who loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We want a king who richly blesses us with prosperity, but we need a king who reaps spiritual rewards on our behalf. Since God's kingdom, the perfect kingdom for which we were originally created in the first place, is not merely 
another physical material kingdom. We need a king who has so much more to offer us than all the riches of this world combined. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Amen? Does that send chills up anybody else's spine? And so we were. We were made for another world. And yet, Jesus comes announcing the good news that in and through him, this other world, this other kingdom, has actually come here. That we're settling for the kingdom of David when the kingdom of God is actually in our midst. That we don't have to wait for heaven to taste eternal life. It starts now. That we don't have to wait for heaven to experience God's very real presence in our lives. That he's left us the Holy Spirit in the here and the now. And that nothing in this world, that nothing this world ever could have to offer will ever come close to comparing to the glory and the riches and the splendor of him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or could ever hope and dream. Heaven is our inheritance. Heaven is at hand. It's in our midst. It's here for the taking. And we settle for some paper, some rocks. Finally, we want a king who rules with a light hand, but we need a king who reigns sovereignly. We want a king who rules with a light hand, but we need a king who reigns sovereignly. Can I just end by getting personal with y'all for a minute to close this out here? Um, I don't have the first clue how to run my own life. I mean, seriously, I am not overstating this. You can ask Polly uh, when the service is over today. She will definitely uh, verify this. If you put me in charge of my own life for one day, just one single day, literally, I I would absolutely and utterly wreak untold havoc and chaos, not only on my own life, but if you come into any kind of contact with me on a daily basis, you better watch out. I, I am that irresponsible with the kingship over my own life. And it really, sometimes it terrifies me. I mean, it truly terrifies me. Until I realize that I don't have to be in charge. I mean, praise God, that is true freedom. I remember the day, I I can still remember the day that I woke up and I realized that I wasn't the king of the universe because I wasn't even the king of my own life. The day I finally got tired of trying to hold it all together and just surrendered to the one, the only one, with the arms big enough for the job. That was the most freeing day of my life, and today could be that day for you too. We celebrate Palm Sunday because we have a king worth celebrating. He's not the king we want, but praise God, he's the king we need. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you are a good king. We thank you that you are a good, good father to us. That while we were yet sinners, rebels, far off, prodigals, throwing our inheritance away on the fleeting, passing, temporary things of this world, you loved us so much that you condescended came into this world and took on our shame, our guilt, our penalty, our debt, and paid it all on the cross. And we thank you that you're the king that we need, not the king that we want. That you're so much better than we could ever dream you up or make you into in our own image. And we thank you that you've made us in your image and that you've called us adopted sons and daughters of you, the king, that you give us an inheritance that's worth more than all the riches of this world. Father, forgive us when we forget it, when we stray. God, if there's anybody here this morning that is waking up to that reality for the first time, that they're trying to sit on a throne that's way too big for them, that they need a new king, a good king, a good father, who not only loved us enough to pay for our sin with his life but loves us enough to continue to lead us and walk with us and actively reign and rule over our lives day in and day out. So we don't just need you for salvation. We need you every moment of every day of every week of the, our lives. We need you to be in charge. If there's anyone here this morning it's just tired. Tired of trying to be king. Pray that you give us the strength. If it's our last, last act that we have strength for, to just surrender. Just step off the throne, walk away, bow down, turn and ask you to come and fill the thrones of our hearts. We thank you for being willing to do that for us, for our sake.